Dear listener, welcome back to another episode of Bodybuilding Down Under. You're, of course, here with your four favorite voices in the world of Australian natural bodybuilding, the niche within the niche within the niche. It's myself, Lawrence. We've got Mr. Jack Radford-Smith, Daniel Yates, and Daniel Chappelle. So we thought it's been a little bit since we've done an update on just catching up where all the lads are in their respective journeys around getting swole, getting strong, and just becoming better human beings to contribute to society at large. So, Mr. Chappelle, we might kick off with you, mate. How is everything going on your end? Mate, everything is going really well. I've spent the last week up in Cairns just visiting family. Um, I'm from there originally, and uh, my family live up there. So, you know, every now and then do the whole uh, trip back up there just to spend some time with them. And I'm lucky that I have a world gym literally within like a five minute drive of where, where my mom is. So uh, nothing really changes in terms of the training and the nutrition side of things. And I think I've, I've uh, like these last couple of months have probably been some of my more productive training of, of this year, I'd say. So strength's in a really good spot. Uh, nutrition is in a great spot as well. I have been more assertive to push things up a little bit more and um i'm sitting into into the 93s at the moment high 93s so we're we're trickling upwards that's for sure and recovery is in a good spot as well my body's probably feeling the best it's felt in a long time so yeah no things are things are really good and we're also sitting right about two months out from from the the season kicking off as well so uh it's it's really exciting to see everything sort of coming together when it comes to you know all of our our prep athletes within bk conditioning so it's uh it's just an exciting time yeah no absolutely mate and do you find that your training or, or your approach like through necessity needs to take a bit of a backseat once you get into crunch time and you know you're doing peak weeks up and, and really keeping a close eye on your competitors yeah i look truthfully i think sometimes my training does take a little bit of a backseat as much as i would prefer it not to but i i don't know if that's potentially just a product of being being in a session and thinking about what i need to do when it comes to like my athletes for that particular week particularly if it's between shows or like approaching uh you know a peak week uh, i'm often my mind is sort of back at the computer back in the office thinking about what i need to implement in terms of a plan and i'm a little bit less present in my own sessions but um it's something just I, i've just had to to learn and learn myself to kind of switch off a little bit more and um I think most people can take, take, take that away from, from this conversation is that sometimes it is hard to leave your mind like at work or, you know, other things that you've got going on and, and just be purely present within that workout. Uh, because I think if you, if you give to yourself, then you're probably more likely to be able to give to others around you, including like your clients, your athletes, et cetera. Yeah, no, absolutely. Mate. I'm, I'm sure regardless of the job, you know, people find themselves thinking about work and, I guess maybe that is one of the the slight deterrents of being an online coach is that you're always in this world. You don't really get a break from it, whether it's your process or someone else's. So, you know, when they're so closely linked, it can be hard to to separate. Yeah, but I mean, we we all just love what we do, right? I mean, I wouldn't have it any other way. And when I say my, I take a little bit of a backseat in my in my training, I'm still certainly pushing hard. It's not, you know, shying away from training intensity or anything like that. But if I look at from from it and I think, you know what, my training's at 95, I probably could have it at hundred percent, you know? So it's just, it's just that slight refinement or improvement in my, in my effort investment that could, could, uh, could benefit. 
Mm, absolutely. So that we avoid confusion of going from one Dan to the next Dan, we will have an intermission in which we will then listen to Mr. Radford Smith check in on how he's going other than lifting 100 kilos on the back extension like the behemoth <laughs> that he is. Yeah, that was a good milestone. I've been working towards that for a while. And uh, I still remember like back in my previous off season, I think the most I got up to was like 60. So it's been it's been some good progression on that lift. And otherwise, things are going good. I've been uh, in the sixth week of my block at the moment. Sorry, the fifth week. So I've been back for, um, no, I lie. It's actually been six. So, um, get your, shit get your together, facts guys. right, mate. Jesus. <laughs> No, but I'll be deloading next week, which comes at a good time because I have a little bit of a niggle in my, I think it's either my bicep or my my brachialis or brachioradialis. I'm not the physio here, so I won't try and diagnose myself, but I'm hoping that uh, that gets better in the next week over the deload. And I, um, yeah, probably just avoid some, anything that aggravates it for the time being, but this block otherwise has been superb, uh, thoroughly enjoying training in general. Uh, I think that like 89 to 92 kilos is where I'm feel the best. I perform the best and food intake goes down well. And I'm around 90, just over 90 kilos at the moment. And uh, getting to that sort of proximity to prep where, although it's still a decent amount of time away, so I won't really be starting prep until like early mid or uh, early mid April. Like I'm still still feels like it's it's quite close considering how long my off season has been and seeing my clients a few weeks out now from the Townsville show uh builds that excitement and then I'll have a couple a few season A clients as well so very exciting times for me and uh yeah um everything's going well yeah and it's exciting that you're starting to you know map out what the prep is going to look like have you and AJ discussed any more specifics that maybe you haven't shared with the BDU listeners yet as to what it's going to, all going to look like? Mm, not not particularly. I think we're still deciding on the number of shows. I think AJ probably doesn't want to do more than five shows and there are more than five shows to do in that season. So I'm not even sure if I'll be doing like the first ICN show, for example. Like I may just do the state show and then nationals as opposed to do doing the whatever show comes before that, the equivalent of the Townsville show. But at the moment, it's looking like the at least two ICN shows. So the state show, national show, then the WNBF show, and then the uh, WNBF overseas, so the, the Worlds. And then if I added a fifth, it would probably be that first ICN show. But at this stage, no INBA. Um, but of course, things might change. Yeah, beautiful, mate. Well, super exciting. I can't wait to to see it all kick off. Like your improvements have been crazy. So it's going to be exciting, mate. What about you, DY? What's happening on your end, mate? Mate, overall, not too bad, not too bad. I had been making some very nice progressions, but as the listeners are probably going to find out very shortly, injuries are running rampant through the BDU uh, podcast. Um, I had like a little bit of an issue with like my mid back felt like probably like mid trap or like even like intercostal. Um, where I pretty much probably had like a strain. It's been about three weeks now and it's probably at about 90%, definitely not a hundred percent. And, uh, knowing me, I like, I've tried playing around with it, like, and, you know, working around it on the, uh, first week, but it didn't work out too well. And it more or less just made it slightly worse. So I've really had to pull back. So pretty much I'm, I haven't been able to do any like chest or back exercises because even if I was to do chest, like 
putting my back on like a bench or anything like that actually caused some grief. So my program currently is pretty much shoulders and arms, legs, shoulders and arms. So you never thought you would see the day, but um, yeah, that, that's pretty much been the go with the training side of things. Nutrition has been really good. Uh, once you take out the five KFC meals a week, like, you know, adherence is pretty much at a hundred percent. So, which is great to see. Um, no, but in all seriousness, nutrition's going really well. Pretty much like the highest calories I've probably nearly been on for a long time, about 3.7. Body composition is holding quite nicely at probably the heaviest of weight as well. Um, just waiting for the injury to clear up a little bit more probably before we push food even higher and uh, probably get a new training program done up um, after that. But other than that, not too bad, I guess. <laughs> Yeah, just full limb bodybuilder mode. Just don't even worry about that torso, man. Just build those it's, limbs, baby. It's mm. straight up isolated fucking shoulders and arms and then legs. As soon as my SIJ starts feeling a lot better too, the back just said, hey, we'll sort you out. I thought it could have been something to do with the rib even. So I actually got an x-ray. Um, It was nothing on that side of things. So it's definitely muscular. Mm, appendage day. Yeah, yeah. Lateral raises and arms, face away curls, like tricep extensions it's it's a marvelous day you know what about you though lawrence talking about injuries what's happened oh mate i could be better i could be better so yeah unfortunately today i had my usual leg session nothing felt out of the ordinary slept well the night before warmed up as i usually would took my usual progression sets on my rdl's wasn't feeling any sort of undue tightness or, or anything out of the ordinary really and went down for my fourth rep on my top set and felt a, a pop in my my left hamstring and I pretty much immediately knew what was happening there. So yeah, very frustrated, very annoyed because this exact same thing happened in 2020, same exercise, same number of weeks out, same injury. So you know, I probably have learned my lesson that next time I'm prepping, I will be taking RDLs out uh, before the five week out mark. But yeah, it was one of those things, mate, where it's like injuries are so complex and it is so hard to pin down one reason why they occur. So I often sort of counsel people like this and I've been having to tell myself the same thing where it's like, it's not like I did anything wrong. You know, there's nothing awry that I did incorrectly. It's just that we get unlucky sometimes and I think the thing that I'm at least pleased with is that last time this happened in 2020, I was like crying in the gym, trying to call my physio, like try to get onto him to get a, like an immediate appointment and just really didn't handle it well from a, a mental or an emotional perspective. Whereas, you know, granted, I tossed my toys a little bit. I got pretty frustrated and was very angry and annoyed at the time. But you know, as the afternoon has gone on, I've been able to sort of compose myself, give myself a bit of a rehab plan, spoken to Joey already, we've got a bit of a plan in place and just reassuring myself that it's going to be okay. You know, my walking is still pretty good, bit of a limp, but like good enough. So I'll still be able to hit my steps. And I suppose the thing I've been telling myself is like, if you break up your week as a contest prep bodybuilder into each day, there's only two days out of the week where I can't 100% tick all my boxes. And, and all that is is because I can't train legs as hard as I'd like. I can still do leg extensions to pretty much full capacity, which is great. So I'll be able to still get a little bit of volume in for the quads, calves, adductors, maybe do some hip adductions, that sort of thing. So I'm just trying to stay positive, reassure myself, and just make sure that I tick all the other boxes. But 
I'm pretty optimistic. I don't think this is something that will have a, a big impact in the grand scheme of prep. I'm still very confident that we'll stand on stage in five and a half weeks looking as good as we possibly can. And until then, I just need to take it day by day and, and progress sensibly and take my own advice, I think is probably the big thing. I almost think that the way in which you've approached things this this year or this, this current um, position is so much better, right? You've essentially de, de, de-catastrophized this uh this this injury whereas like obviously the the previous year that you'd competed immediately catastrophized it right just by immediately thinking how is this going to impact myself am i even going to be able to jump on stage now like my training is going to go into the to the you know into the dirt i'm going to i'm going to lose all this muscle because i'm not able to load this particular structure etc 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 and now you've like flipped it on the on its head and you're thinking, okay, well, yes, I can't do like these certain things, but maybe I can concentrate on these things that I can do. So essentially like control, you know, control the controllables at the end of the day. And I would say that that in itself would have uh, a, a causational effect and just decreasing like your pain sensitivity and probably just speeding up your recovery in the long run, right? Because you're not like, we know the psychological aspect to, to to pain and just how catastrophizing it from a mental standpoint can just make it so much worse. So I think this is actually some great, great piece of information for, you know, listeners who might also be experiencing some discomfort and might be dealing with a little bit of niggle at this point in time. And I think some people can be on the fence as to whether they're, oh, do I throw the towel in now in terms of prep? I'm six weeks out, seven weeks out, eight weeks out. How am I going to you know, manage this and handle this? Well, there's still plenty of things that you can do to concentrate on between now and, and when prep commences. And I'm sure you can probably speak more about you know, the recovery process in terms of perhaps things that you might start including as a product of gradual exposure to this, to these, you know, to exercise and, and, and to loading this tissue. You might do isometrics and you might start to sort of slowly dabble into what's comfortable in terms of uh, movements and, and, and what sort of pain it causes and also what's what's actually comfortable pain versus perhaps, you know, pain that's, that's bad, quote unquote. Yeah, no, absolutely, mate. So, I mean, for people who are interested, you know, in terms of like the immediate thing that you do with a muscle strain, like how I'm approaching this is I'm not, I'm not going to take any sort of anti-inflammatories or pain relief because it's not that bad. And, you know, there's sort of an argument for avoiding things that are going to reduce inflammation because inflammation is the way of body actually kicking off the repair so i won't be icing heating using any NSAIDs or anything like that all i've done is i've chucked my compression leggings on um which i did last time as well and it certainly does feel nice to just have a bit of support around it and then just doing some really basic like range of motion at the hip and the knee and then some isometrics to start off with so that will probably hold me over for these first three or four days um, where I'm then hopefully, you know, going to be able to start to try load it a bit more. I'm, I'm hopeful that by Sunday, you know, my walking is at least feeling hundred percent back to normal. Cause I still am walking with a bit of a limp. Like, as you can imagine, when I get to that, like end stage of gait with the fully straight leg, it does pull on that hammy a bit. And like I was saying, it's it maybe off air, like it's quite a proximal strain. So the leg flexion, the like knee flexion movements are actually not too bad. So I don't think it will be too long before I can get back to like some decent sets or potentially even some BFR sets of line or standing leg curl, but the hinging that maybe will take a little bit more time, which is annoying. You know, we, we want to be able to feel like you're doing everything possible. So to have to take your foot off the gas a little bit is very frustrating and it's obviously not ideal. 
but I'm not I'm not doom and gloom. You know, I think it's going to be fine, and, and I think we've got more than enough time for it to be feeling 100% come show day. Now, in terms of the RDLs, what's the plan going forward? Because you said, obviously, like last time, five weeks out, you know, you cause an issue. Are you going to reintroduce them going into the back end of prep now after you've just had like a strain? Well, what's the plan? Or are you going to sub them out, maybe go for a different variation? Yeah, I probably won't bring them back, mate. I think the only hip hinge that I'll probably reintroduce would be like getting back to some back extensions. Like I would like to get those back in the mix. And then potentially doing something like a, you know, a reverse hyperextension and obviously getting back to like hip thrusts and that sort of thing. So I suspect that, you know, before the first few shows, I won't be loading those up a ton. Like even if I could just in a couple of weeks, get back to doing hard sets on standing, lying, maybe seated leg curl. If I could get that done before show one, I'd be really, really happy. But I'll probably leave the hinges um, until after the first two shows when we have like a little bit of buffering to do our thing. But as far as the RDLs go, it's so annoying because I was off them for so long because this happened. And now it's going to be that like, you know, learning to trust the movement again and like sort of letting go of a bit of that sort of mental block when you have hurt yourself doing something. But chances are like I was going to be, I was actually going to run RDLs and conventionals both in the off season at the same time, but obviously just load um, conventionals at the lowest volume possible, like only one set. So once I'm feeling better, once I'm out of prep, I'll probably just get back to conventional deadlifting, maybe get back to SLDLs and then we'll eventually work our way back to RDLs, but I've got no immediate plans to get them in. No, but I certainly will not be doing them in the back stages of prep next time. And I know that like, that's me reading into it as well. Like, but I think twice in, in mm. the same circumstances, both in prep, like I'm, I'm not going to risk it again. Yeah. I think it's, as you mentioned though, it's also a good reminder to people about how unpredictable injuries are. Like you've recently wrapped up a deload as well. And it's just crazy to think that that happened despite everything being in the as it should like you're well recovered sure you're in the end stages of prep but your your recovery modalities are still on point your body's healthy etc and i think that's something that i often remind clients about is when they say oh what x y and z equals oh it's going to increase my risk of injury training hard is going to increase my risk of injury uh but we don't really have a objective answer on that necessarily yeah, completely right, mate. There's just way too much that goes into it for you to be able to assign a, a particular thing to it. But, you know, the uh, the short version is, I don't think it's going to be too bad. I'm very, very confident that it's not going to have any impact on the season at large. You know, I'm I'm definitely not going to lose any muscle in that time. And I just need to be sensible, do my thing. And, you know, very confident we'll still get up there in five and a bit weeks looking pretty good. So, We'll I've see how we go. Eh? Hormone helps as well. If you want to try that, yeah, that's all natural anyway. So uh, mm. I might give that a go for a few weeks, see what happens. So yes, but we'll push on, boys. We shall push on, and uh, we do have some listener questions that we will cycle our way through for the the remainder of this discussion. So the first one is asking about you know how do we balance the optimality of a program or what would be quote unquote optimal on paper versus the amount of enjoyment that someone derives from their training you know how much should enjoyment come into it if we're thinking about writing a training program so maybe i'll swing this over to to you dc to kick us off 
Mm, yeah, sure. I, this is this is something that I actually have constant conversations with, with my athletes about because I think, I mean, and that's part of part of essentially hiring a coach is is to perhaps stem a little bit further away from what I enjoy to perhaps what I need to do as an athlete in order to progress, to grow and improve. Because I think often when uh, I would say a majority of athletes are likely going to conform to a program style that sort of reinforces their own biases and perhaps just reinforces their own enjoyments as well. So they might, for example, not enjoy or not like to do any sort of hinge-based patterns and sort of bringing this back into full circle. Maybe they have you know, injured themselves in the past with you know, a hinge-based movement and there might be some sort of catastrophizing against or, or demonizing as to you know, doing hinges will immediately correlate to you know, causing an injury. Uh, and so, you know, you look at, you look at their physique and, and you look at their lower back development, their erectors, lower lats, et cetera. And this is just clearly lacking. And it's like, okay, well, you know, if we, if we just continue not loading any of this sort of hinge based patterns, then this is going to be a clear gap within, within your physique moving into, you know, this, this next season or future competitions or, you know, your first competition as a first timer. So we probably need to be doing some sort of, you know, hinge based patterns to load these structures and strengthen them and develop them. And that's where a coach, I guess, comes into rotation to try and introduce these movement patterns that, that the athlete is going to create buy-in towards, they're going to be able to progress with, and they're going to be able to manage their, their recovery demands, you know, effectively as well. So I think when it comes to program design, for the most part, we should be doing things that we thoroughly enjoy. I think one, one thing that is often not discussed in program design, you know, quote unquote optimality, I think is also enjoyment factor. I think that comes into it as well, because if we know that as, as a bodybuilder, this is a, a long game, like we're going to, we have the, the endeavor of doing a few competitions under our belt. That could be a 10 year you know, time span that someone competes across or potentially like even more. So, you know, how, how are you going to get an athlete to, to buy into something and perform it years and years, you know, years after years, like, if they have no enjoyment towards towards the program design. So I think as a coach, you're kind of walking that fine line between preserving enjoyment factor, but then also factoring in things that the athlete needs to do. And I think that when it comes to uh, being a bodybuilder, I guess one of the, the beauties of being a bodybuilder is that if we have our physique and that's our canvas, there are so many different brushes that we can use to paint, paint our canvas, meaning that you know, the brushes are sort of more so pertained to exercise selection, repetitions, et cetera. And we have so many different ways that we can, you know, develop our physiques. If I'm not a big fan of barbell flat pressing, well, I don't really need to, to have that in my program to progress my, my chest. I can utilize other exercises. So I think as a bodybuilder, it's just, it's just, it's fine. It's that fine line between enjoyment factor and a program design that is going to appease our goals as it pertains to the, the category that we're you know, want to be, that we want to do in the areas that we need to further develop. And, and DY, maybe you'd have some good insight on this because one thing that when I reflect on a discussion like this, Steve Hall, I've heard him say this a few times where it's like, well, results are my preference, you know, mm. results are what I enjoy. So what do you say to that argument? Yeah, that's a good one because you got to you got to balance the two. But at the exact same time, like coming off this question that you're asking is some of the best training really isn't enjoyable. And that's just like when you look at how bodybuilding's done, it's literally running lifts, training cycles for multiple, multiple weeks on end just to try and milk little bits of progression. And is that as enjoyable as mixing it up every week? Like, you know, training what you want to train. Um, 
you know, it, it comes down to that. Where like I remember Brandon Kempter doing a hundred rep cluster sets on a pendulum squat. I don't know what person in this world thinks that would be enjoyable, but hey, it gets it done and he did it because that's what he needed to do. But when it comes down to enjoy, I always try and like chat to my clients about it. Like, you know, what things would you like to alter within the program? Is there any lifts that you want included? So then that way they have their input. So then that way they can have some enjoyment within the program. In the end, as a competitor, it's not going to be the most enjoyable process running the exact same program for X amount of time. I'm sure everyone wants to make it super spicy, add some stuff in that they like. So I try and do it collaboratively where like, you know, you add some of the enjoyment stuff that they might like, but at the exact same time, you know, we've got a job to do, especially as a competitor. If you want to bring the best physique to the stage, sometimes, you know, mixing up every single workout, doing whatever the fuck you want to do, doesn't get you those results. And I think as a serious competitor, exactly like what Steve says is like, you know, if your goal is to be a very, very top-notch competitor, sometimes the enjoyment somewhat needs to go out the window. But with that being said, I feel like you can still mix a large majority of that in there, um, you know, if done correctly. I often think as like a, as a, let's say we're, we're coaching, you know, more so someone in the realm of like a pro athlete, you know, someone who's been a competitor for many, many years. I often think that these, these individuals have like their, their enjoyment comes from the result, right? I think that's essentially where they see their, their enjoyment. And, but I do think that these individuals in particular, they've been around the game for the game for so long that perhaps they, they know what exercises match them well and, and perhaps just what exercises just don't seem to provide a great, a great, you know, stimulus to fatigue, I guess you could say. So, you know, again, coming back to that whole process of like a barbell bench press versus like a dumbbell bench press. Uh, if I've had an athlete who majority of their, uh, their, their training history, they've run dumbbells because they just get maybe a greater range of motion. They can load it better. They just feels more comfortable on their, on their pectoral girdle than running a barbell. And I'm like, no, you need to run a barbell because like, that's what I want in terms of the program. Well, again, that's not like that, 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 that will come down to, you know, lack of enjoyment factor. So I think what you're, what you're on about DY is like basically on point, like it, you need to, to balance the two, right? Uh, enjoyment certainly, well, like the definition of enjoyment, I think is very different from athlete to athlete. Like some athletes will derive enjoyment just from simply the process of finishing that session. Oh, that was a cool workout and walk away from it. Whereas another person is going to walk away from it, having absolutely busted themselves in the gym, be like that freaking sucked. But I love that because I know that that's going to produce results for me. Therefore <laughs> I'm driving back home and I love that. Like I love, I drive so much enjoyment from that. That brings me happiness. Yeah, exactly what you said there. Like even the most enjoyable workouts for me are the ones that I make the most progress in. Like if I get a PB across every lift, like even if it's small or whatnot, that's an enjoyable workout for me. Like I don't sit there and be like, you know, there might be some hard sets in there, but as a bodybuilder that, you know, trains hard, like, um, well, if I do train hard, that's another, that's another question. Um, you know, like it, the, the workouts are going to be absolutely torturous all the time. So like, you know, how enjoyable are they truly where I get a majority of my enjoyment and fulfillment from like having very productive workouts, knowing that I am, you know, taking that step closer to my goal or my physique goals. Like, you know, if there's small little wins, each workout from might be like an incline Smith machine bench press to a hack squat, they're all getting me to where I need to be. So then that brings me enjoyment more than let's say the actual training program itself. Mm. Jack, anything to add? Not really. I think it also depends what aspect of training they don't find enjoyable. Like if someone 
let's say doesn't like barbell bench for someone says, Oh, I don't like how training makes me feel uncomfortable. Like I don't feel comfortable pushing myself. There's two very different roadblocks there. Like the, the bench press is quite an easy fix. The other one, not so much an easy fix. Like you're, you're not really going to achieve too much success. If you, if you don't, I don't think anyone truly, no, we, we do like pushing ourselves in certain respects, but it never feels comfortable. You got to be comfortable with being uncomfortable. Do you guys think that learning how to train hard and pushing through that discomfort, is that something that you feel as though you had just from the start of your training? Like immediately you walked into the gym and you just knew how to train hard or was it something that you feel like you've developed over like years of, of training? I think it's something that I've just developed over years of training. Like, you know, for, for me, it was chasing progression from the start. So I would always like to see progression coming on. And then I think after X amount of time and you've been progressing for so long, you get to that point where you actually kind of learn hard just because you've progressed for so long. The progression doesn't come easy. And then you're more or less forced to train hard. But I think also training around individuals, for example, like even training around like Joey, when I first started my sessions with him, like it takes you to another level. And then like, you know, you train with Lawrence for legs and then that takes you to another level. Um, it, it definitely wasn't something that I had right off the get go. There was nowhere near the proximity to failure that I would be requiring now for my training stimulus. But over time, you know, if you keep chasing the progression, they get to a point where the progression isn't going to come easy and you're going to need to dig your fucking heels in. And then you're kind of forced to train hard. Mm, yeah. And I also know, I'm, I'm, I think the exact same thing. The athletes that I've had come on board who train damn hard from the get-go and maybe they're relatively new to their overall bodybuilding journey are typically ones that have been athletes in previous sports mm. that have involved needing to push, you know, damn hard to achieve any degree of athleticism. So I still think it's something that you kind of learn. And I guess coming back to that, that statement before Jack about sort of, you know, is it the roadblock associated with the, the exercise enjoyment or is it their pushing hard enjoyment? I think as a coach, like depending on where someone sits in their journey, you might have to sort of nurture that person a little bit more through mm -hmm. that process of finding enjoyment from training hard. And maybe that comes from a product of actually seeing the results actualize in in your field of view over time. And it kind of, you therefore get that buy-in and it's like, now I know my effort investment is yielding a reward as well. So it's kind of worth it. Therefore mm. I'm happy to push through it, but through the initial phases, like I'm getting super sore. This is not enjoyable. Can't even get up off the toilet. Like I can't see any results just yet, but like, I'm, you know, I kind of need to stick through it because coach says I'm, I'm going to see improvements moving forward. It is interesting to hear people say that, I think because we've all conditioned ourselves so much to DOMS and like be, them being positive. So like even when we have those days where it's like tough to get out of bed, uh, like I still see that as enjoyable, but people who are genuinely new to resistance training, like you got to imagine that it's it's probably actually quite uncomfortable and painful for them. Maybe they don't actually see it in a positive light and it might put them off training again, which is is tough for me to, I can understand it, but it's it's so foreign to me as a person. Mm, okay, I think we can all like vouch for this, how we're, we're somewhat guilty for like, you know, having a, a killer workout. And then a couple of days after you're like a bit sore and you're like, you're poking that, that area and you're like, well, I'm actually a bit sore here. Like that was actually like, it's kind of cool. And you're like, you keep poking it. You kind of like keep inducing this like pain in your, in, <laughs> towards yourself. Whereas I'm sure someone who's, you know, you can all think back to when you first started training and that soreness was just crippling. Like it was just mm. not comfortable, but now we somehow, somehow, derive all this enjoyment from discomfort yeah 
Yeah, I've actually had what I think like a few patients that have come in just with really bad DOMS, like where everything they've described to me, they've had like no acute mechanism of injury, but they've had like, you know, say a, a whole carnival of sport on the weekend. And like, you know, I've had a few like young teenage girls that have come in and just calves, just like so much DOMS. And I'm like, sort of just explain to them, like, I think you've just worked really hard over the weekend like you haven't torn anything you haven't broken anything you just got some some nasty doms so you just lay in there with a little bit of soft tissue work and they always leave feeling a bit better and then in a couple of days they're completely fine so no that was good though lads i think we we answered that really nicely so the next one is how to get into the gym after an extended break now obviously extended break is gonna mean a lot to different people i would probably say that you know let's use a holiday as an example, or a bout of sickness or something that might preclude you from training altogether. Like if that was around a week or so, I think you can probably get back to normal relatively quickly. If we were thinking about like a longer holiday, if you did nothing for maybe like two or three weeks, I would probably say you want to get back into the gym for that first week and almost run a bit of a deload to start back off. So maybe do the similar thing as you would for a regular deload where, you know, reduction in training intensity, reduction in training volume. See my latest episode on the General Muscle Podcast with Dr. Pack for more details on deloads. Cheek plug. Um, but yeah, just having essentially like an intro week or a deload week to accumulate, you know, that volume again, because if you've had two or three weeks off, you're probably going to get some decent DOMS and a little bit of stimulus, even from submaximal training when you reintroduce it again. But then again, you're like if you've had two or three weeks on holiday, but you've maybe every three or four days, you've gotten like a full body session in, then, you know, you maybe have maintained enough of that like neural stimulus to the point where you could just slot back in. So I think it's very dependent, you know, and that's assuming that nothing's gone wrong. You know, if you've had two or three weeks off based on a really severe injury where you couldn't do anything in the gym, you know, let's say you had like a really severe lumbar nerve root injury or cervical nerve root injury where you were literally in severe pain on heavy medication, couldn't do anything for a few weeks, then it's obviously a different story because we're thinking about, you know, loading tissues effectively. And obviously, extreme bouts of sickness are going to be very different. So, very hard to give a clear-cut answer here, uh, but I might throw over to you, DY, maybe adding in a little bit more, anything I didn't cover. Well, as we just talked about being a sucker for discomfort, I'll just send it first week, hit it off 100%. the bat strong. Like, you know, you want muscle soreness. There's nothing like muscle soreness for not training for half a year and then sending it with zero RIR. 20 sets, every single muscle group, every single workout. Let's get it. Give nah, yourself rapto. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, but I completely agree with everything. I would like, if you've had an extended uh, period of time off, I'd pre pretty much run the first week as maybe like a test a week. Like, you know, maybe do yourself up a program, make it work fit within your schedule, pick out some lifts that you want to run for this entire training block. Maybe even like, you know, the next half a year, like, you know, if you've been thinking about running certain lifts, put it in there for the first week, run it more or less as a tester, you know, take it through the movement pattern, see if you actually enjoy it. You know, obviously don't push to failure on the first week. Otherwise you're going to be extremely sore. Maybe start at like 70, 80%, like, you know, get a good little gist of it, how it feels under some actual load. And then that way it leaves you for a decent hunk of progression. Um, you know, in the, in the end, it's like, if you start with less volume, less training intensity on the first week, it means you can probably just run the training block for longer. 
So like, you know, if you're not going to bury yourself in the ground first week in terms of recovery volume, pick some new lifts, decrease training volume, maybe even training sets, and then slowly work your way up from there. Because if you had an ex extended period of time off, the progression is going to come extremely nicely regardless. And then depending on how you recover, you know, given like week three, week four, you know, as you continue to add, um, you know, weight to the bar and training intensity. If you're recovering quite nicely and you started with the sets quite low, you could probably even taper up the sets a little bit alongside that as well, depending on how the recovery is going. But in terms of that, you have anything to add, Jack? Did I miss anything? Not really, no. Right. I was going to say though, it might be worthwhile getting in a session with you. You train roughly like 50% intensity it, session. Exactly right, yeah. And Good I charge milestone. heavy, heavy prices for it too. So, <laughs> Yeah, you essentially just like work your way through the continuum like get a session in with dy then come train with me and then go train with dc and then like maybe you know if you've been in an off season for 10 years you'll be able to train with jack mm -hmm. yeah. but if you're chasing <laughs> muscle damage i definitely would go to lawrence because like you know oh, we, I, I, yeah we, we chase serious muscle damage. like that's the whole point of bodybuilding we want as much muscle damage as possible and lawrence has found the way you watch when it hits stage time he's going to have a whole extra inch of hamstring Dude, I can't that, and it's actually t almost to a detriment. Like, I'm gonna have to tear the right one as well, just to make yeah. sure that when the repair occurs, yeah, I'm gonna have like Nicholas valued hamstrings on the left hand side. I think that just mm. goes without saying. Think about all the positive inflammation that you've got going on. <laughs> oh, dude, so good. I so think much I muscle adaptation right there. Yeah, like imagine if I could maybe sort of pair this with like sepsis or something, just really inflame the whole body and just get a lot of that repair happening. That'd be perfect. Oh, Before and after, would love to see that transformation. Yeah, 100%, 100%. Well, we'll go on to the next question, which asks best timing for a pre-workout meal. And I mean, I'm sure we'll all say the same thing because there's no nuance to this at all. So what's the answer, DC? Oh, just immediately 22 minutes and 36 seconds flat. Like anything more than that. And, Correct. And I was about to say that. In yeah, fact. right. Yeah, 100%. So anything more than that catabolic, uh, anything before that, you've churned through those carbs and, uh, you know, you're going to be super flat during that training session. Um, so I think it, it, <laughs> I think it depends. It's, it depends on so much what you're eating, right? Because I think that the type of meal and the complexity of that meal as it pertains to, you know, how much, how many, I guess even even the the mix up of protein, carbs, and fats within that meal is just going to add complexity, and that's just going to delay, I guess, the the time in which it's absorbed to um to increase you know glucose within your bloodstream, potentially utilize that within your resistance based training. So, I think if we're looking at it from the perspective of something that is generally high glycemic, has a high glycemic index, maybe high glycemic load, then we're probably looking at something between you know thirty to forty five minutes potentially given that we're consuming that type of carbohydrate more in isolation. Cause I think if we start adding in protein fats and fiber into the mix, uh, the allotment of different macronutrients is just going to add complexity and generally just slow down digestion. So somewhere within that, you know, 30 minute to 45 minute ballpark, I think is, is totally fine. But if you're having something like, let's say you're, you're consuming like oats pre-workout. Uh, I mean, that has a, a larger fat, fat amount and it also has, uh, a larger allotment of fiber. So we know that it's going to generally slow down digestion. And uh, even if you're consuming that within a you know, ballpark of an hour and a half, two hours, something like that with, before your workout, I don't think it's enough time to amply digest like that and, and utilize it within your resistance-based training. And I see the only benefit 
to consuming a meal that is something as more fulfilling as potentially there seems to be some performance benefits to actually feeling a little bit more like satiated pre-training. So if you are immensely hungry, uh, I remember re reading a research paper not too long ago that that basically determined you might see detriments in strength and performance uh, versus if you've just consumed something that has provided some satiation, even if it is the most not, you know, not ideal slash optimal pre-workout style meal um, can still provide some benefits. So, but <laughs> I guess in the context of, let's say a, a contest prep competitor where, where you're always immensely hungry, you know, maybe this is kind of dabbling on that <laughs> may not be as effective, but um, I think it really just comes down to, it depends if it's, I mean, we can almost state what would be a more sort of ideal based uh, pre-workout meal. And that would be something that's very just simple, simple carbohydrates, pre-training, 30 to 40 minutes beforehand, I think you'll be, you'll be in the green. Yeah. I don't have too much. I think the major components as DC said is essentially the proximity since you last ate the proximity to your workout as well. And also the composition of the meal itself, that'll help dictate when you should eat and what you should eat as well. Cause if you're having a pre-workout meal three hours prior to your workout, which isn't necessarily a bad thing. Like that's probably, I would say like the upper sort of limit as to how long I would, how far away I would have a pre-workout meal, but you would ideally want something that is maybe slightly lower GI or slower digesting compared to half an hour before where you're going to ideally have something that's predominantly carbohydrates and high glycemic index carbs. And yeah, comprep com is another game altogether uh, because inevitably you probably are going to be hungry to some extent before, during, and after the workout. Mm. And I think if you're trying to eat a meal to like feel satiated pre-training, you're, you're probably going to eat to the point of like physical stomach distension because mm. you have no concept of what fullness is, right? So I, I can even vouch for this myself. There was one, <laughs> there's one time in prep where I, I think I consumed my jelly just before I trained. <laughs> and I remember trying to like tighten up my belt when I was doing like an RDL. And I'm like, what the hell? I can't tighten this thing up <laughs> to the same hole as previously. And I'm like, uh, duh. I just had like five, <laughs> half a kilo worth of jelly before my training session. All right, that's mm. not going to happen again. <laughs> yeah. And I think there's also something to be said potentially about Obviously, the parasympathetic nervous system is more active while digesting food and while exercising, it's more so the sympathetic nervous system. So trying to like trying to achieve a pump and prep is hard enough as it is. Uh, but while and then let alone having all your blood shuttling towards your digestive tract. So that's something that I'm personally going to ideally change in prep. And I'd be interested to get Lawrence's thoughts on this because he has been keeping his meals like more moderate in terms of volume as opposed to high volume and not consuming like uh, too excessive amounts of fiber because I found in my prep, like my pre-workout would usually be oats and a lot of oats and like fairly close proximity to my training window just to kind of achieve that satiation before training. But I, I wouldn't have been surprised if retrospectively that had some drawbacks for the session itself. Yeah, my pre-workout meal has pretty much been the same all prep mm. where it's been like cream of rice, with whey and then just some dark chocolate on the top, which I suppose, you know, very, very low in terms of fiber, like mm. if anything, really high carbohydrate, obviously some fats from the dark chocolate, partly just because I like the taste. And I, I have anecdotally found that if I just have carbohydrates, like maybe quote unquote burn through them a bit quicker. And I feel like I do then hit a bit of a, a wall in the session. So Maybe it's completely placebo, but I do like having the fats a little bit. I mean, in, that meal. in prep, like I think anyone in prep, 
you unless it's an intro you ideally want to have some fat or protein with a high glycemic mm. carb otherwise you literally will burn through it incredibly yeah. quickly yeah i wouldn't say i've noticed a huge difference as far as like pumps are concerned really but i will say that like keeping the consistency and not opting for like the higher fiber options like wheat bix or oats or milo cereal it like i've never had a point in a session where i've felt any distension or any sort of bloating like mm. even the whole prep to be honest i really haven't had any gi distress which has been great i think the one thing i just wanted to add as far as like the difference between prep and off season in that you know you're going to be a lot more full anyway in the off season so let's say you're training and your pre-workout meal is going to be your third meal and if you're like a you know fairly decent sized guy and you're eating 3,500, 4,000 calories plus, you know, you've already had a fair bit of food by that point in the day. So by the time you're eating that third meal, putting it on top of what you've already eaten, you may need to wait a little bit longer. Like, you know, for Jack's example, like, you know, Jack is getting to the stage where he's feeling a bit sick as to all the food he has to eat. So if he's going to lay the third meal on top of probably already like 2,000 calories and then train in half an hour, it's probably not going to work. Whereas like, in prep, you do notice that you eat, you digest, you're good to go. Like as long as you're not overdoing it on the volume and the fiber, like you are probably going to be able to train a bit quicker. And that might be ideal because you can eat, you can feel satiated, feel energized, get your session done in a little bit of a closer proximity so that you're not potentially then trailing off at the end of the session. So I think that's probably the only thing I'd add. Have you noticed any differences this prep? Because even in previous preps, like you never sort of went crazy on food volume or fiber. But this prep obviously is kind of the best of all in terms of how you've handled that side of things. But have you noticed your waistline being any tighter or like any more abdominal, like not necessarily more abdominal detail, but any sort of effects in that department from a body composition standpoint? Yeah, I don't know about body composition, but certainly just like the waistline tightness, waistline control, I think has been way better. And I don't just contribute that to like practicing vacuums whatsoever, because my gut content for sure is a lot lower. Like even last prep where I was still pretty minimal on the diet foods, you know, there was still one day a week where I'd have a diet jelly every night instead of rice with my fourth meal, I was having potatoes to volumize. I was having probably the same amount of edges I usually do at the final meal, but I was also then probably getting in like some coleslaw or something slightly more voluminous at another meal throughout the day. With mayo. Whereas this whole... Without mayo. Yeah, with the KFC mayo. Right. Yeah, makes yeah. sense. Yeah. On track. And, um, oh, it puts you further in a calorie deficit then. It's science. Yeah, 100%. Yeah. And, and that was when I really noticed that like the bloating was an issue. Mm. And this time, you know, I essentially, I still am only consuming veg at dinner time, which is the exact same amount that I eat in the off season where I try to get like um, three different types, 150 grams of each. So it's, it's amazing the difference it makes just in terms of like, you, you sort of lose perspective as how nice it feels to not be bloated because mm. in prep, feeling bloated it just it almost feels nice in a way because at least you don't feel completely empty but i almost would rather just have a flat stomach and feel good and not feel like bloated and gassy because that feels pretty crap by the end and even if it means like i'm not consuming as much volume mm. do you ever feel like uh quite hungry not necessarily hungry but just like so shriveled upon going to bed like sometimes you just lie there in bed when your stomach's like completely almost devoid of food and you feel a bit 
Like uh, it's hard to get to sleep. Have you found that at all? I know this might sound like I'm being like, oh, Lawrence, like this can't be true. But like, I almost would go as far to say is that I haven't been hungry yet. Mm. Like, I know that sounds crazy because I'm five weeks out. But like in terms of the hunger that I felt where I'm sitting there going like, my stomach is growling, I need to eat. I would be quite confident for saying like, I haven't felt that yet. And to be honest, like, it's sort of that I'm ready to eat because I'm like, okay, cool. Like I can eat, but like even sitting here now, like what I last ate sort of two and a half hours ago, it's not like I'm like, all right, boys, see, I'm off the call. Like going to go cook my last meal. Like I'm, I'm okay. Like genuinely, like the hunger levels have been very, very manageable this prep. And to be honest, man, like if anything, the hunger signals are more waking me up a little bit earlier because by the time, like, Partly because I I do get a bit more tired. Like once it hits like eight thirty nine, like I'm 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 ready to go to bed. But it's more so I'm probably waking up like a little bit earlier. Like I'm I'm starting to rouse, and then I lie there for fifteen minutes, and then my alarm goes off rather than being woken by the alarm. So I think my body is starting to wake me up a bit earlier. It's like oh yeah, maybe go look for some food. But I yeah I don't know if I'd say it's hunger. Like I don't think I've been hungry yet this prep. Very cool. The Wagovi is paying off. If you, I don't know if you guys have heard of Wagovi, but it's that weight loss drug that is the craze in the US. Oh, is that the one that they give the diabetics? Yes. The like injection? It, it, yeah. It basically suppresses appetite. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Because what I do is I'll load up the GH, the trend, and then just like dabble in the Wagovi and then just straight, straight in the hamstring, actually, in the left <laughs> side, which is crazy. I wonder if that tissue was a bit weak. That's what yeah. you get for going in, intramuscular should have learned idiot yeah, yeah straight up but no like um i think all in all it's it's one of those things where you know the pre-workout meal to summarize very very individual dependent probably going to be different depending on what phase you're in well no um, we've established but, it's 22 minutes uh, yeah yeah what no, was it, you're yeah, right. I'm, I'm making it way too complicated yeah. yeah typical natural bodybuilders just making things way more complex than they need to be hey yeah <laughs> train hard eat big lift weights you know, yeah. say your prayers. It'll be fine. Eat clean, train hard, and test yourself. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> All right, boys. Well, what we might do is we'll finish off with one more. And it says, how do you guys start a deficit in prep? So you boys being the contest prep specialists, I might sit this one out and hand it over to DY and we'll work it our way around. So for the start of the prep, normally what I like to do is I'll like map it out, like how long the prep's going to take itself. And then I'll kind of work from there, breaking it up into individual section sections. For example, maybe it's a 30-week prep, then having X amount of calorie deficit for X amount of time to elicit a certain amount of drop. Now, and then alongside that, I'm more also alter the calorie deficit depending on what the individual likes. For example, some people like um, differences between non-training days and training days macros. So that I might be able to work that into that as well but figuring out how much they need to lose over x amount of time and then i'll calculate the calorie deficit based off that as i break it up into certain little portions normally i always like to overshoot it just a touch at the start to account for some metabolic adaptation that might happen on the back end and so on like that but pretty much i'll break it up over an x amount of time frame and then calculate the calorie deficit based on the amount of weight they need to lose each week for example they might need to lose one let's say they need to lose one kilo across that first week or 
which is roughly about 7,700 calories. So then splitting that up across all the seven days, 1,100 calorie deficit, which would roughly um, equate to a kilo lost across that time. Obviously, that isn't the exact number. You're also going to alter some stuff in terms of steps and so on like that. But figuring out how much you roughly need to drop across each week and then dividing it up from there. Yeah, I, I'm pretty similar. Like the, I guess my shorter answer is pretty much for every prep client I've had, I would have done a previous weight loss phase with them. So at that point, upon embarking on the prep, like I would already have data to be like, okay, this is how you respond to a deficit. And I know their adaptability. So for example, like some people, I might be able to get away with just a four to 500 calorie drop initially, because I know that'll result in the amount we need from the get-go. Whereas others, I know that will just be redundant. Like they'll literally adapt to that in a week and it's better off doing like an 800 calorie drop initially, even though on the outside, that seems like quite aggressive. Uh, it's it's going to be worthwhile to, because there's something to be said, I think psychologically for having to make minimal adjustments in prep as well. And I know Alberto Nunez, uh, I think he put something on a story or or did a post recently about like a prep, how many, how many changes should you be making? And he, he referenced like, I think two or three changes or two to four changes, the whole prep, which is yeah, granted a very small amount of changes. And maybe that's more so for people who have prepped many, many times, but I think there's also, maybe you can attest to this Lawrence, this prep, you haven't had to make many changes. I'm sure that's beneficial for you psychologically, um, not seeing those numbers have to be adjusted all the time, even if it means potentially going a little bit harder out the gate, which for natural bodybuilding is probably more beneficial anyway. Definitely. Yeah. Because sometimes it can be a little bit disheartening. It's like, oh, okay, we're dropping again this week. We're dropping again this week. And I mean, to, to be able to write out the initial calories like nine weeks and then I think we made a drop, then did that for like another six weeks. So just being able to go like, oh, okay, I'm not on any less food. There's no reason for my training performance to drop. Like, I think that was a big sort of mental boost rather than, because let's be honest, like we're all hungry by the end. You know, yes, you can shift your mindset to think, no, I need to drop these calories because I need to be shredded. But like, it is a little bit disheartening when your coach goes, looking good this week, man, five grams of fat less, 25 grams of carbs less, see you next week. Like, mm. you know, it, it is a little bit disheartening. Like we'd, we'd be lying if we said we didn't all go, ah, oh, damn, like was hoping I'd be able to eat a bit more food because by the end, that's all you want to do. So to not have that as frequently, I think has made a big difference. Yeah, I think it sounds great on paper to not have as many nutritional adjustments, but I think, I think almost one thing that that doesn't consider is that metabolic adaptation and, you know, adaptive thermogenesis, like these things don't occur. I don't think they occur linearly. Like I think towards the later aspects of prep, I would argue that this is where the most metabolic adaptation occurs really just to preserve that um that that tissue right and just pr preserve homeostasis so you know at, at the at the get-go of a diet phase i don't think you immediately have all this metabolic adaptation kick into play uh and hence why often what i find or we, we find within our athletes in bk conditioning is that often at the, at the start of a prep we can make rather assertive drops in, in calories and we kind of ride that out for like 10 weeks or so you know you make the next adjustment maybe that takes you another six weeks you make another adjustment that takes you four weeks you make another adjustment that makes you uh, you know, three weeks and all of a sudden you're at the, the final leg of prep, maybe maybe eight weeks out, six weeks out. And often what I find is that because, because that metabolic adaptation is really kicked up and ramped up, I often find that, that for our athletes, that's probably the point of most adjustment. I find that that's where we're really tweaking things. And I, 
I also look at it from the perspective of we're also tweaking the protocol a little bit too. So, you know, how am I collecting data in terms of my, my athlete in terms of how I'm, how I'm going to peak them? Well, I'm probably going to need to introduce some higher days. Uh, and so we get that data. Okay. Well, now we're going to, we're going to move back into a bit of a, a further depletion week. We're sitting at five weeks out. We've got some data now, but uh, we still have a little bit more to go. Okay. Let's make a further adjustment, slight pull reduction, refeed frequency. Okay. Let's bring it back the following week. So I'm, I'm actually, I find I'm the opposite of Nunez because I'm, I'm, I'm tweaking things constantly towards, well, towards the tail bear, end. Well, bear in mind the question is, and I was more so referencing, how do you guys first start the deficit in a prep? So I was referencing that, but I do agree that towards the end of prep, there, there will be more frequent adjustments. Like I'm usually pulling up my clients or my competitive client spreadsheets uh, daily or every second day to assess, okay, do we, do we have the luxury of adding in a high day this week, for example, because your, your rate of loss has been more than what it needs to be. So, mm-hmm. yeah. No, I, I completely agree. I, I think through the initial stages, like, I mean, you can afford to be much more assertive, right? Cause I think like a whole condus prep, uh, in terms of how you would map out like their, their weight loss journey is, I guess it's almost like an exponential decrease. You go, rather assertively at the start so you can perhaps just slow down your rate of loss towards the tail end and just make that uh generally an easier process you don't really need to pull off as much weight through the final the final stage of prep but um i mean you guys can probably attest to even your own like for example mini cuts usually your, your diets are like shaving off a thousand calories or so right it's usually like mm-hmm. rather assertive uh whereas we're certainly not implementing those sort of changes like towards the tail end as an example yeah I think also maybe as well, like the the more minute the adjustment, potentially the faster you'll adapt to it as well. So some people might drop like five grams of fat, whereas like, is that even going to show in someone's proclivity to lose weight? Potentially not because you've got to factor in someone's tracking accuracy as well. Are, are they accurate enough in tracking to even reflect five grams of fat? You'd, you'd hope they are, of course. And then even, I guess, like the, the general variance or allowance in terms of like lack of nutritional precision on, on nutritional panels, as an example. Mm. So, uh, you know, like as an example, you might get a NATAB reference for like chicken breast, but maybe not every not every single chicken breast is the exact same in terms of its quantity of protein, et cetera. Like it could be slight variances in various foods. Right. And even in just terms of the, I guess, yeah, the accuracy of that. So, you know, if you're making very minor changes to nutrition at the start, you, you could be somewhat just washing away that that adjustment and see no change. So I almost think you need to make an adjustment that the, the magnitude of it is large enough to perhaps offset some of those little inaccuracies as well. Mm-hmm. Yep. And that's where there's definitely something to be said for eating very similar foods towards that tail end because then those inaccuracies and in nutrition information panels won't really play into it because you would have been consuming the food anyway. So you're using your you're pulling from an existing pool which is only staying the same mm, yeah. yeah that's so true 100 agree beautiful one last question boys it's a one word answer only we're going to go jack then dy then dc the question is barbie or oppenheimer oppenheimer open oppenheimer i'm going oppenheimer as well because i'll be seeing it this saturday which i'm looking forward to dear Where's listener thank you yeah. Oh man, I'm just going by myself. I can't. Uh, I can't right. handle the anyone else around me. So I just need full Zen mode. You know, really let this hamstring repair. Mm. You definitely right, picked well, the right film to Zen out in for sure. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. 
That is going to do it for another episode of Bodybuilding Down Under. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you very much for tuning in. And reassured, we have received all the orders and we'll be placing the orders for the shirts very, very soon. So thank you to everybody who placed an order. We really appreciate the support. Can't wait to see you guys repping them out there in the community. And just be aware that $2 from every sale will be going towards the PRP injections, cupping, dry needling, and extensive psychiatric counseling that I'm going to need to get back to RDLs. So yeah, you're helping my hamstring out as well. So thank you very much for that. But as always, we'll be back every single Wednesday with a brand new show. We'll catch you guys later.